0: My name's Gary, Uh, I'm filling in for Pastor D tonight. That's a tall order, but he's uh, celebrating his birthday. He's hoping to uh, have me fill in for him once in a while throughout the year. Uh, He says he needs a break, I can't understand why, but he's, uh, so I'm happy to be able to do that for him. And my wife Kathy and I have been attending church here for about a year. And uh, we really enjoy it here. It feels kind of like home because we know a lot of different people. And so tonight, if you would take your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, if not, open your phones uh, or whatever you use and turn to the book of Second Timothy with me. Second Timothy. I thought that For the chances I have to speak to you that I'm going to just go through the book of 2 Timothy. When I have to pick topics out of the Bible, it's hard. I feel like a squirrel in a nut dryer. I just I don't know what what to pick. And uh, there's just so much. It's a rich, rich experience in our lives, and I'm so glad God has given it to us. 2 Timothy. I love the book of 2 Timothy. It's perhaps my favorite New Testament book. It's hard to say what your favorite book is, but it's really close to my heart, and it's one of my favorites. and I think my love for the book might be somewhat influenced by my identification with Timothy. You see, Timothy's father did not play a very prominent role in his life. And though we don't know what happened to him, we do know that he was absent. I grew up with an absent father. He left when I was five, but God was gracious to me by giving me an active, present grandfather. Um, And when I was saved at 22 years of old, he brought a Paul into my life. And so I identify with Timothy. I'm just sort of drawn to Timothy, and I'm drawn to his story as well as to his mentor, Paul, who would take such an interest in a young guy who was kind of perhaps adrift and fatherless. He cared enough for Timothy, matter of fact, to write his very last words that he ever wrote before he died, before his head was removed. And uh, Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, the same church which Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians that Pastor Mike is leading us through on the weekends. Um, It's a powerful little letter. It's personal. It's It's, hard-hitting. It dives deep into our own lives, if we'll let it. And uh, you probably know more about 2 Timothy than you realize you do. And I want to just take a quick trip through the book of 2 Timothy Because the book of 2 Timothy contains more memorable statements per verse than any other book in the New Testament. And I want to just highlight a few. I'm going to take the most memorable, the most familiar to you, and it's got a lot of others that we could take our time on. But if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse seven, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, or God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of self-discipline. Uh, verse 12 in chapter one, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Chapter two and verse two, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Verse three, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Are these verses familiar? Uh, Verse four, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. Verse five, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown. Number, verse six, the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Verse nine in chapter two. It says, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Chapter two in verse 15. This is the kind of the Iwana theme verse for the Iwana program. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Chapter two, verse 20. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. The one who cleanses themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the Master, and prepared to do any good work. Verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Great verses. Chapter 3, verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Chapter 3, verse 7, Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 12 in chapter 3. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In chapter 16, I mean verse 16 in chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Chapter four, verse two. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage. Uh, it, it just goes on and on through the book. It's it's full of those things that we're familiar with, and they're powerful statements for us in our day. Now, why do you suppose there's so many hard-hitting verses in this little in these four little chapters, four small chapters really? I think there are at least three reasons I'd like to put before you tonight uh, that Timothy is so pertinent, three three reasons that Timothy is so very pertinent in our lives. The first one is because these are the words of a dying man. These are the words of a dying man. They're they're the last words Paul wrote, as I mentioned, And, and you know what? Paul was in this prison, he was was sentenced to death. Dying men don't have time for unimportant stuff. You know, I don't think when I'm on my deathbed, I'm gonna be worried about how the Braves and the Astros are doing tonight. I don't think if I was sentenced to have my head taken off, I was gonna be writing to all of you and say, hey, what's the latest score? I think I'm gonna be writing important things. And that's what Paul did to Timothy. And that's why it was such a powerful little book. Every word counts. So Paul was laser-focused in this little book, which was his last communication. Another reason—it's on the screen there for you—is that there was an increase in apostasy going on in the world and in the church. Uh, If I were to—I'm going to take you through some verses in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was written three or four years earlier than 2 Timothy. Paul really wanted to demonstrate that there were some troubles in the church and he was giving Timothy some instruction on how to deal with that. And he, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter one and verse three, uh, 1 Timothy 1.3 says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge some that they may teach no other doctrine. 1 Timothy one five and 6. Now the purpose of the commandments, commandment is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from sincere faith from which some have strayed. First Timothy 1.9, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. First Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. First Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. First Timothy 6.20. O Timothy, guard which was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed from the faith. So there was some who were stepping away in 1 Timothy. But it's interesting that when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the sum turns to all. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, This you know, that all of those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are those two guys. <laughs> 2 Timothy 4.16, at my first defense, No one stood with me, but all forsook me. See, there was was an apostasy going on, and it was getting worse and worse. And Paul had this urgency to help Timothy be able to stand against it and to recognize what was going on. And he knew it was his last chance to communicate with him. And number three, the third reason I would say this little letter is so pertinent is that culture was rapidly crumbling around young Timothy. Culture was rapidly crumbling around Timothy. And and because of this, Paul senses an urgency in the times. He knew that the church was at a crisis point. He knew that this young pastor was needing encouragement, and this letter is designed to do that. And in case you haven't noticed, uh, our nation, and our world, and even our churches are all at crisis points in our nation right now. Across the world, things are going on at a level that we've never seen before, and it seems as though we're seeing the unraveling of modern civilization right before our eyes. And I think that's how Timothy felt, and Paul was writing to give him instructions on how to survive that. And I think he's still writing to us today to give us instructions on how we should function in such a society, and in such a culture, and in such a world that seems to have tons and tons of animosity toward believers. Paul's little letter to Timothy answers a lot of our questions about how we should live. In your notes, I've just given you a general outline of the book of 2 Timothy. It's important we do this background work because if you don't understand Timothy and Paul's relationship, and if you don't understand the times they were living in, you're not going to be able to grasp the the meat, the pithiness of each statement that Paul makes to this young man. And chapter one, uh, the outline is, Paul tells Timothy that you want to survive in this time, you should be stirred in God's gift. You should fan into flame. Make make the gift that God's given you, the gift that he's given each of us, make it white hot, fan it into flame. Be stirred in God's gift. Chapter two, he says, be strong in God's grace. And boy, if we ever need grace, we need it right now. And strength comes through resting on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter three, he says, be stable in God's guidance. We've got to be people with our noses in the book at all times to survive in times like this. And chapter four, be steadfast in God's gospel. Be steadfast in God's gospel. It's so very, very important that we're able to respond with the gospel instead of anger in these days. My first response is often not what I want people to hear. The first thing that comes to my mind, I have to put the brakes on because it's easy to be uh, short-tempered and quick to speak rather than slow to anger and slow to speak. This little book is a manual for our day. It's as though God knew that you and I would be facing these times at this particular point in history, and he gave us clear and powerful ways to live in the midst of these days. We saw the sum in 1 Timothy turns to all in 2 Timothy. Early Christianity was facing a critical challenge. In 1 Timothy marks a partial breakaway. But 2 Timothy marks a total breakdown in society. 1 Timothy, the theme is more the church of God. And in 2 Timothy, the theme narrows down to the child of God. How should we act? as God's children. Because the church is not going to be any stronger than the individuals that make it up. And so when, this, when the times got really bad, the more that God's people would focus on their own relationship with the Lord and their own depth of, of maturity and their own confidence in God's grace and God's gospel and using their gifts in a way, that would make the church dynamic, not, not the church. You know, there's no way Pastor Mike and Pastor D can pump up enough for us to do it. But we, as we grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, can make a strong, powerful statement about the power of the gospel and the value of the church in our culture. And because of Paul's pastor's heart, his deep love for the purity of the church, he spends some of his last days on earth writing this letter and instructions that were essential to protect us. And I don't wanna take it lightly. These words we're going to study are full of great insight. In the times ahead when I fill in for Pastor D, I I just, I'm going to know where I'm going to go. I'm not going to worry about what I'm going to talk to you about on those nights. Paul makes it really clear to Timothy that even though there's been a great departure from the faith and the truth, he was to hold firm to the truth and hang his hat on verse 15 in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy Be diligent, he says, be diligent. That means do your best to present yourself to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So here in Paul's words to Timothy, he's speaking to the child of God who might be finding the collective testimony of the modern church isn't as pure as it should be, that people are abandoning the faith. What do I do? You study to show yourself yourself. You be diligent in the Word of God and see what God does through you. And, and the call to all of us is that individually we're held responsible in, in 2 Timothy 3.12 to live godly in Christ Jesus. Live godly in Christ Jesus. I'd like to—let's just read the first two verses in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. I don't have any grand goals. I don't think we're going to get past those two verses tonight. But Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What a a great introduction. In that word, he begins with a word of introduction to Timothy in the letter. And in that introduction, there are three people and three words. There are three people. First of all, we find that this book is authored by Paul the aged one. Authored by Paul the aged one. It was written by Paul from a prison in Rome. And this doesn't seem to be, at the end of Acts 28, it talks about a a Roman imprisonment where Paul was in prison in Rome, but he was under house arrest, and he had some guards with him, and, and people could come and go as they wanted, and it's that particular imprisonment that Paul says, as a result of my imprisonment, the whole palace guard knows about the gospel. I don't think it was that imprisonment. That was the first time he'd been sent to Rome from Jerusalem, and, and things went better for him there, but this is about three years later. And now, three years later, he's not under house arrest. He's in this dark, what's called a Mamertine dungeon. It's a big cistern hewn out of the ground into the stone. And he's, the opening is just barely wide enough for a man's shoulders. And they lowered him down into this dark dungeon and put him there. And, and there'd be moisture in the bottom of that. And you can let your imaginations go with what else would be in the bottom of that. Uh, and, and God... That's where God had him, and he was in a dark place, and it was in that dark Mamertine dungeon, waiting execution, that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. While Paul was imprisoned, you know who was running Rome? A guy named Nero. He was an ugly guy. He used to light his garden parties with the bodies of Christians burning on stakes. He, he really, really was not a nice guy at all. And, and uh, he's the one who thought this dark Mamertine dungeon would be a great place for the Apostle Paul. And so while Paul was writing this second letter to Timothy, it was probably in the fall of 67 and, and, and Paul died in the winter of 68, so it wasn't long before he was to lose his head. And when Paul was writing this, he was in that prison, and you know how it is now with fall. I'm, the older I get, the colder I get, and I don't like that. But in this fall weather, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of gearing up, getting myself ready, what do I need to stay warm for the rest of the winter? And Paul was that way. Paul says, oh, man, I'm in this dark, deep Mamertine dungeon. It's it's wet down here. I'm chilled already, and it's just the fall. And uh, he needed his cloak. He needed his cloak. He wanted Timothy to be able to get there before winter. If you would look over at chapter 4 and verse 9, excuse me, he says, do your best to come to me quickly. Do your best to come to me quickly. Verse 21 then, Uh, In verse 21, he, he says, do your best to get here before winter. He wanted him to bring him something. Well, what was it? In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchment. Especially the parchment. He needed his cloak to be able to endure those cold temperatures in the winter. But when we read those verses, I get the impression, and you probably do too, that he, uh, he would rather have Timothy bring his parchments. If he could only bring one thing, if he couldn't bring them both, bring the parchments, leave the cloak behind. The parchments would have been his handwritten copies of Scripture, Isaiah. Psalms, the Minor Prophets, many of those portions of Scripture that he was just feeding on and living on. I'm kind of challenged by that. Would would I put my own spiritual needs ahead of my physical comfort if I was in Paul's situation? You, or, or we, we might think we would fail the test, but I think better of us. I think that the Spirit of God's dwelling in each believer, and I think if we got in that hard situation, that we would, we would desire the right things, don't you? I think if you realized that in three months your head was gonna be gone, you wouldn't be so worried about catching a cold. You wouldn't get a head cold anyway. I think that we would choose the way that Paul did. Bring my Bible. If you can, bring me some extra clothes, but if you can't do that, please at least bring my Bible. Because having the comfort of God's written word to sustain us is better than any cloak, and it would protect you more than any cloak. Because God's word is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and it will sustain us when nothing else can. Part of the problem I see happening today is people are looking at government and other people to sustain them when God's word promises to do that. You guys know that man doesn't live by bread alone. Man doesn't live by warm cloaks alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what will keep us in these days. And that's the consistent testimony of those who follow the Lamb. In Revelation 12, 11, it says, they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. What did they love? They loved Jesus. They loved his word. That's how they overcame. They, they, these are those that follow the lamb whithersoever they goeth. I love that picture. If any of you have had the privilege of watching a mama duck and her baby ducks, it's the most fun thing in the world. And the mama walks around and, and she zigs and they zig and she zags and they zag and it's just like this. And I have that picture of us following the lamb wherever he goes. Following the lamb of God, not missing a step. Pursuing with everything we've got and just quacking ourselves happy all the way along. Because that is where the testimony is. The word of their testimony you know, you can almost picture the scene of the arrest, of Paul's arrest when he was in Troas. Paul and Timothy, Troas was uh, just a, a little bit, it wasn't too far away from Ephesus, and, but he was in Troas, they were probably teaching, probably going to people's houses and teaching the Word of God. And you can almost picture Paul and Timothy were walking down the street on their way to, eat, to or from a place to teach. And Paul had the parchments tucked under one arm. And the soldiers came, the Roman soldiers came and arrested him right there in Troas, right on the street. And they drug him off. And as they, dragged, as they drug him off, he, he dropped the scrolls, the parchments, at Timothy's feet. And as he was being led away, Paul could look back and see the parchments lying on the ground and the tears streaming down Timothy's cheeks, his beloved son in the faith. And if you look at chapter 1 and verse 4, that's what he recalls. He says, recalling your tears, I long to see you. Recalling your tears. What a tender scene. He says, oh, Timothy, can you come before winter? I long to see you. I remember the tears when I was drug away from you. And he's probably also thinking of the chapter in Acts, chapter 20, before Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And he was on his way, you remember Paul said, I gotta get to Jerusalem. You know that story, you all know that story. I gotta get to Jerusalem. And he brought. The, he's going down to Jerusalem, and when he got to the port city of Miletus, which was close to the church of Ephesus, He sent for the elders of the church of Ephesus, and who would have been part of those elders? Timothy, Timothy. And so here's Timothy and the rest of the leadership of that church, and they come to meet Paul at Miletus, and they have a great time of fellowship, and at the end Paul says, now I wanna tell you, you're not gonna see my face again. And do you remember what happened there? All of the elders, and it would have been Timothy included, they just fell on Paul's neck and wept because of the words he said, you won't ever see me again. And Paul, so Paul's thinking of Timothy's tears at Miletus. He's thinking of his tears when he was ripped away from him the final time at Troas. And it just does not get much more tender than that in scripture. Paul referred to himself as the aged one in Philemon 9. That was five years earlier than this. So when we say it was authored by Paul, the aged one, we're on track. Paul made something very clear. To us and to his readers in verse 1. Don't you, don't you like to use some sanctified imagination sometimes and wonder how it all played out? I'm just thinking, somebody comes and says, Timothy, got a letter from Paul. Here. You know, you don't know whether to run to your closet and open up and read it alone or to rip it open right there in front of everybody. And, and anyway, one of Timothy's main thoughts probably was, I wonder how he's doing. I wonder how he's doing. I haven't had enough word. I wonder how Paul's doing. And in chapter, in verse one, Paul, he says, Paul, that's from me. That's the way you used to do your letters. Uh, I would, if I were to write a, a letter to Tom, I would say, Gary, greetings. Grace, mercy, and peace to you. As I recall your tears, Tom. See, it's different than we would do. Instead, we say, Tom, how are you doing? Tom, greetings. But that's not the way they did it. Then. And so Paul, there's his first name. There's the name that Timothy wanted to see, Paul. And then Timothy wants to know how he's doing, and Paul tells him right off the bat, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus. In there, Paul, we just just see him answering the question for Timothy right off the start. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. He he mentions his authority. He mentions his confidence. "I'm I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I'm in prison by the will of God. I'm about to lose my life and become a martyr by the will of God. Wow, how incredible. And then he tells Timothy about his hope, according to the promise of life, according to the promise of life. And Timothy read those letters, those opening, that opening sentence and those phrases, and he said, Paul is doing okay. He's doing great. He's flourishing spiritually. He… He realizes he's still an apostle of Christ no matter if chains can't bind that. He, he realizes that he is where he is because it's God's plan for his life and he is holding on to the promise of eternal life no matter what happens to him. And that had to cause young Timothy's spirit to soar. Well, it was authored by Paul the aged one. This letter was addressed to Timothy, the younger one. Addressed to Timothy, the younger one. In verse 2, he calls him his beloved son or his dear son, depending on your translation. I'm reading out of the uh, new—the NIV, and uh, I'm kind of a Bible schizophrenic. I use lots of different translations at times, and I, I love them all, but I do know which one is the best one for you to read, and that's the one that you will read. It doesn't matter what translation it is. If you don't read it, it's not the best translation. The one that's best for you is the one that you read all the time. Pick one that you like and immerse yourself in it. That beloved son, this was like a letter from dad. And this is one of the things that draws my heart so intensely to this letter. As I said earlier, my dad left our family when I was five years old. And that particular event scarred me for an awful long time. My mother told me that I would stand out on the sidewalk when I was five years old after he had left. I would stand out on the sidewalk after supper time and I would stand there wait for him to come home till dark. About five years later, well, he never did come home. About five years later, my mother remarried, and I was excited to have a father figure in my life. My stepdad owned logging trucks, and so I kind of grew up in the woods. At the height of his business, there were 18 of them. And from the time I was 12, it was my responsibility to wash all of them each week, and to check all of the batteries, and to grease every single grease zerk on the whole logging truck. As a 12-year-old boy dragging that 35-gallon drum of grease around with the air hose, it was a pneumatic uh, grease gun, through, through a gravel parking lot with little tiny wheels on it, that was frustrating at times, I'll tell you. And then to work my tail off and to have my stepdad say, you missed one, you know how my grease irks are in a truck? criminally. Well, as I got older, I realized that I was thriving on doing this work because of all the verbal praise that I got when I did it right. And as I got older, I mean, I also received a small hourly wage, and so I was richer than most kids my age. I had kids who would come to me and say, hey, can we go to lunch? Can we go to A&W? and they wanted me to pay, I wasn't that stupid. I'd take my little brother, though. That was fun. As I got older, I was also charged with doing all the tire repair work in that truck shop. 18 logging trucks can create an awful lot of flat tires and tire work, especially during the hot summer months. As I played three sports in junior high and high school, I had to learn how to accomplish all my work in the truck yard along with all of the practice and the travel that came along with playing sports in in Southern Oregon League. I wasn't the best athlete in the league. I wasn't even the best athlete on some of our teams. But I did receive quite a few awards, and we were hosting a big regional baseball tournament this one summer when I was a junior in high school, and I asked my dad, my stepdad, if he would come and watch me play. He had never watched one moment of one game in the previous seven years. His response was, why would I want to come and watch kitty games? If you're gonna keep playing kitty games, you're as worthless as a pimple on a truck driver's rear. When I realized that my acceptance by Him was only based on what I could do for Him, I went through some more serious emotional struggles. I found myself drawn to people who would affirm me, people who would praise me, who would respect me for who I was. I became even more performance-based and I fought that battle daily until the day I came to know Jesus Christ. And I found that in Him, I was accepted because he loved me. He didn't love me for what I did. He didn't love me for my sports prowess. The God of the universe loved me because he created me. And he sent his son to die for me. And I want to tell you, folks, that changed my life. Well, Paul had filled that father-mentor role in Timothy's life with an absent father. and, And now here is his last correspondence from that beloved father figure. You know, every worthy father desires a deep relationship, an unbreakable and rich relationship with his children. In the same way, Paul not only desired, but he experienced and expressed the intimacy and bonding love that came through Jesus Christ to Timothy, his beloved son. Now, Timothy was probably in his early 30s right now, and Paul longed to see him face to face one more time. Timothy, in a sense, uh, was a reproduction of the Apostle Paul. And I found myself, going back to my story just briefly, I found myself longing to imitate the men that I saw now that were God-lovers, and that love me because God loved me. There's power in that. You might think, what do I do to be a good father? Just love your kids the way Christ loves you. There's not a magic formula that it changes with every family, it seems like. But just love them like Christ loves you. And but Paul knew that Timothy was going to be his voice when he was gone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. He says, for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you. And you know, Paul must have a lot of confidence in Timothy to send him to the Corinthian church because that wasn't exactly the model church, was it? And so he sent Timothy to be his voice there. He says, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul regarded Timothy as a clone of himself, a carbon copy of his leadership. He trusted Timothy's teaching, and he knew the young pastor would teach people just what he himself had taught in Philippians 2.19. It says, but I trust, I hope in the Lord Jesus. I trust in the Lord Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Now listen to this. For I have no one else like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. What a compliment to Timothy. I trust Timothy to watch over you. God says to you dads, I trust you to watch over your kids. He says to to us in this church, he says, I trust you to do your best in this church. You'll be a representation of the gospel. Timothy, more than anyone else, had the heart of Paul, had the habits of Paul, and he had the theology of Paul. And most great men owe their leadership skills to the influence of a mentor. For Timothy, it was Paul. What a joy. One of the richest things that ever happened to me was hearing my children say, I want to be like my dad. Because I didn't ever think there was a hope of being a good dad, because I'd never seen a good dad. I I had no hope of that. And to see that, I understood the grace of God, that he can take our broken backgrounds, he can take the worst situations we've grown up in, and and He can make beauty out of ashes. He can give us the oil of joy for mourning. He can cause us to have hope in the morning. Well, our children will say, I want to be just like my dad, and dads, let's just give them something to emulate. Let's just do that. If you be like Jesus, they'll want to be like you. It was authored by Paul, the aged one. It was addressed to Timothy, the younger one, but the whole book's about Christ, the eternal one. The name of Christ appears 15 times in this short epistle. The preeminence of Christ should always stand out in whatever we do, and Paul, even on his deathbed, so to speak, was writing about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And even more so when death or hardships knocking on our door, may it be Jesus all. May Jesus be all that people see in us. May Jesus be all that people see in us. What a great picture that is for us. As the hymn writer said, when we're we're close to dying, he says, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory And grace. And that's what was happening to Paul. The name of Jesus was still sweet on his lips. Timothy's a book for our day, folks. And I hope as we get chances periodically to look at what Paul did and how he used it in Timothy's life and how he used it to encourage the church, it'll encourage you in the same way. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be able to be like Paul, that when we're confronted in our culture, in our society with anger and frustration and and restraint and people trying to tell us what to do and what not to do and calling us names and doing things, that we will be able to respond with a higher praise. We will be able to respond with the name of Jesus and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for giving us hope. Thank you that the day is coming when we'll see you face to face and there'll be great joy in your presence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.